0: 919- Nine, eight, seven, two, seven, thousand. Now, here are Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc., investment
1: advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc., and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. And we are the Lewis family, ready to answer your questions tonight.
2: This is Linda Lewis, and thank you for joining us on Money Matters on News Radio 680 WPTF.
1: And I'm Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner.
2: And I'm Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner.
3: And we're here to answer your questions for the next hour.
2: We're going to take a caller right now.
1: Dick, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? Yeah, I just wanted to ask you a question.
4: I've got $315,000 worth of paid up insurance. And I just went through a divorce and I don't have any children or any close relatives. Now, who would get that when something eventually happens to
1: me. Well, that's interesting. You've got 315000 of paid-up insurance. Right. What's the cash value on that right now?
0: That's what it is.
1: It'll, in other words, you could walk away right now yeah. with 315000 Yeah. Well, for sure, before I go to your next it to, to the questions you've asked, why do you have it? Why not take it for yourself? Well, I mean, what am I spending? <laughs> what well, else? at least let it grow. I mean, you could make a nice charitable gift if you chose to, or gift to yeah, a university. That's
4: what I was talking about, uh, Right. Can I donate it to some charity? Yes, you
1: can. As a matter of fact, there's some nice things you can do. But let's go. Let me get your facts again. How old are you, Dick? Fifty-five. You're fifty-five years old. You're divorced, so there's no spouse. Right. I uh, there are no children. Right. Who is the beneficiary on the policy right now?
4: Well, not us problem. My ex-wife's still on there. This divorce just became final last
1: okay. month. Okay. Well, I presume that you want to get that off before we get off this telephone call, right? Right. Monday morning. <laughs> right. <is final laughs> All right. That's number one. Uh, and number two, if there are no children, and you will, in other words, you will designate the beneficiary. If there is no beneficiary, you just take her off well, you can't. I mean, if there's nothing, it's going to come back to your estate. The estate will be the beneficiary, and then it will go through the rules through, through, uh, the rules of intestacy. Yeah. In other words, as if a person had no will. Right. But you can, and what you can do is set up a charitable trust, and they're very, very creative things. You can do a lot of things with that. If you will call the office during the week, Linda will show will set up an appointment to meet with me, and I'll show you how to set up a charitable trust that will provide for you as much retirement income as you want for the rest of your life, and also you may be able to go ahead and leave as much as a million-dollar gift to a university or a charitable foundation for scientific research. Yeah,
4: that's what I want to do. I want to leave it to a good charity.
1: Well, if you will call the office, the area code is 919-872-7000. 872-7000. And I'll go ahead, set up an appointment, and I'll show you how you can go ahead and do what you want to do. Okay. Thanks, sir. Thank you, Dick. Well, Doug, annuities.
3: Annuities is a big topic with lots of questions and a lot of misconceptions and um, maybe not enough information out there about
1: annuities. Yeah, I think the best way to approach the subject of annuities, especially because of retirees being uh, attracted to them, is to simply do the math. You know, as Americans are facing this matter of growing longer and longer, then a lot of people, a lot of these... Growing
3: older, longer and longer. What did I say? Yeah, you just forgot the older. That's all right. But you're old.
1: (laughs) Anyway. All right. Well, I should say, as we Americans (laughs) face the prospect of growing growing longevity risk. How about that? There you go. Yes, sir. Then some of us... Not myself, but some of the clients that come to us start talking about annuities for guaranteed lifetime income as insurance against outliving their assets. And they're popular. Annuities are popular, but they are not without controversy.
3: And annuities offer the investor income for life, and that's probably the most attractive feature.
1: That is, Deborah, but that income never increases, and so we have to do the math. Now, given current levels of inflation, each year, the investor effectively receives three percent less.: Ooh. That means over the course of 20 years, the income stream from an annuity that starts off paying, say, 5,000 a year shrivels to the equivalent of 2,000 a 2,000 a year, and of course, there's a good chance that inflation will increase even beyond three percent over his lifetime.
3: So it sounds like we're running negative at some point.
1: That's right, Deborah. It's what people don't realize. Those returns are diminished by the fairly hefty expenses also that most annuities charge, which range anywhere from 35 to 5% a year. So a retiree whose annuity is earning between 5% and 7% is only really receiving one5 and 3% a year after expenses. It's, it's not a pretty story when you do the math. So the question might come, well, why do so many people buy annuities? Annuities, I would say, are sold because of the commissions that they generate to the brokers. They sort of lock people into unrealistic expectations because no one has really helped them do the math.
3: So if an annuity was going to be your only source of income,
1: be very concerned. Be very concerned. Get a second opinion for sure. Mm
2: -hmm. And certainly get a disclosure of what the fees are that the advisor is getting for you purchasing that investment. I mean, well, that insurance product. Well,
1: that's good, Linda, as well as the fees of the annuity. What are the insurance costs inside? Those subjects are usually not talked about.
3: And like most investments, it it really is an individual situation. So might not be nothing wrong with an annuity being a part of your income, but uh, you definitely need to be educated, know what you're buying, and uh, be, not be doing it alone. Going into it with someone who is genuinely trying to put your interest ahead of their own.
1: That's right, Deborah. That's where education becomes so crucial.
2: Education is crucial. And uh, there are folks that come to us that say, well, I have the stuff. And it's important to understand, at least have a working understanding of what it is you're getting yourself into. I think that's the most important thing, Linda. I really do.
3: Call me, Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner at Lewis Financial Management. 919 872 7000. 919 872 7000.
2: We're going to take a caller right now.
1: Andrew, we'll take your call
2: now. How can I help you?
3: We have been encouraged to
4: uh, look into a living trust uh-huh. and think uh, different seminars advertised in local newspapers about a living trust. And I'm just wondering what exactly what that's all about and how would we apply that to our situation.
1: Tell me a little bit about your situation, Andrew. How old are you? I'm
4: 40 years old. Are you married? Married and seven children.
1: Seven children. Are they any of them at home still? All of them. All of them still at home? Yes. All right. Income, are you and your wife working or just one of you?
4: Just myself.
1: All right. What's your income?
4: Uh, between the two businesses, approximately 100000 to 120000 a year.
1: All right, and you say business so I guess so uh, self-employed.
4: Uh, self-employed sole proprietorship.
1: All right, self-employed Schedule C returns, hundred and twenty thousand income. Uh all right. Now, what are you? Do you have any idea what your expenses are running right now f- to support the family?
4: Um, about sixteen hundred a month. Uh, you can convert that in a year. I'm
1: not sure what that comes to. Well, let me see. Sixteen hundred. That's only. That's less than twenty thousand a year. I don't. That doesn't. That doesn't sound right to me.
4: Uh, that's
1: what it is. That includes vacations.
4: That includes
1: everything. Gifts. Every. And seven children on 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 twenty. That means you're accumulating a about fifty or sixty thousand a year. Right. After taxes. Right. Wow. Yeah. Uh, usually, the ones that people forget is the is the question of vacations and travel and entertainment. Right. right. Uh, but you sure you've got those built in? That's all in there. Good. All right now. Um, what do your what's your investment portfolio look like right now in the way of your assets?
4: Uh, as far as total assets, we're looking uh, probably three hundred fifty thousand
1: dollars. All right. Uh, give me a breakout of how they look so I can see what. Uh, for example, how much do you have in cash and money market and CDs and so on?
4: Okay, we don't have any any kind of uh, assets in money market CDs or anything all at right. all.
1: How about mutual funds? Nothing. Nothing in mutual funds. Uh, how about um? retirement plans
4: nothing we have no no planning at at all
1: well then where is this 50,000 a year or 60,000 surplus going
4: Uh, we're going to pay a $200,000 loan to pay for a business
2: how much are you paying each month on that debt
4: Uh, six seven thousand six seven thousand dollars a month
2: Hmm. well
1: something I, I the first thing I can tell you is that it sounds like you're in in desperate need of financial planning. That number at the office, by the way, is 919 872 919 But let me go to the, the question you called on, which is revocable living trust. Um, the, the living trust, and I presume you're talking about a revocable living trust. Mm-hmm. A revocable living trust has certain advantages and disadvantages, but basically it's a vehicle in which You establish a trust and then transfer everything you own into the name of this trust. The trustee runs the trust, and typically you name yourself as the trustee, so you are simply transferring everything from your right pocket to your left pocket, so to speak. Not only that, you also reserve the right to change your mind and revoke it. So therefore, you would say it sounds like a bunch of nothing to me, right? Yeah, right. The IRS says the same thing. The IRS says it's a bunch of nothing. You've never done anything, and therefore, there are no tax advantages whatsoever because it's revocable. You can change your mind, and not only that, on your income tax return, you even use your regular Social Security number since it's a revocable trust. So, the first thing that we understand in establishing a revocable living trust is it's a non-event as far as the IRS is concerned. Now, what does it do, however? it allows you to avoid the expense and delay of probate because if you die, since you've transferred everything into the name of this trust, then what's left in your estate? Nothing, right? Right. So therefore, there's nothing to probate. Mm -hmm. So the cost of probate, which is twofold, it's the attorney's fees and the court cost, is eliminated because there's no probate, and the delay of probate is gone, because there's no will or nine-month waiting period, and so it can generally be distributed uh, as, you know, uh, immediately after death. The second advantage of the living trust, there is privacy. No one knows what a person leaves after they die. Uh, another advantage of the revocable living trust is that it avoids conservatorship. Now, this is the issue of what if you become disabled? If you don't die and you become disabled, who has access to run your business for you? or who has access to your bank accounts. The question of disability becomes crucial.
3: If you'd like further information, call us at 919-872-7000 or go to our website, DougAndLinda.com.
1: That's DougAndLinda.com. A revocable living trust does what a durable power of attorney won't do. It allows someone to continue, and usually that someone is your spouse or a child, to take care of your assets at the time that you become disabled without having to you, to prove that there is a power of attorney. You see what I mean?
2: I think we lost him. I think he cut
1: out. Did Andrew cut out? Yeah, but go ahead and continue that, Doug. Okay, well, we can go down the rest of the features. Uh, it avoids the expense and pr- delay of probate, and it assures privacy. The most important thing is you don't have to have a conservator assigned if you're disabled, if you can't take care of yourself. Uh, and then there's uh, very often the professional management of assets. I uh, There are a lot of other benefits to the revocable living trust. But the one thing that confuses people is it does not save on estate taxes either. My concern about Andrew is that he said that he's hearing seminars and people advertising and so forth. And I think what he needs to do is meet with a financial planner that can look at not only the question I mean, I got bigger problems with Andrew's situation than just a revocable living trust. Yes, there's a problem with two businesses and seven kids. He does need some way of providing for continuity. You don't risk seven children and a wife uh, unemployed to go ahead and have zero in a retirement plan, zero in cash accounts, zero in mutual funds.
2: Most people don't like to have debt or reduce debt, and that's wise to do anyway. But you need to balance it by accumulating.
1: Yes. and if you do it properly, Lynn, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can accumulate and your accumulation will grow at a compound rate of return faster than your debt reduction will go. So eventually your investment portfolio will pay off the debt without losing uh, the comfort of retirement.
2: Andrew, if you're listening and to any of our other listeners, if you have a question or if you would like to receive our introductory packet of information, I'll be happy to send it to you. Our number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That is USA 7000. If you have some financial planning concerns or questions about your situation, get a notebook and start jotting down some of those questions and work with a financial planner.
1: I want to remind all of our listeners, Deborah and Those who call for appointments, we are being diligent to give them a copy of The Middle Class Millionaire. And that reminds me of a story of a client that we met with. Uh, just last week, actually, it was a really. She's
3: been with us for almost twenty years. Uh,
1: I think. Uh, let me see. Eighteen years, I counted. She's been with us eighteen years. She yes, sir. began. Yes, yeah, she began when she was in her late thirties, I think. So it's yes, sir. never never too young to start. But she was diligent to go through the years and everything, uh, and. Last week, she came to tell us that she wants to go ahead and take early retirement. We looked at her numbers, of course, which we've been tracking through the years. She is now a millionaire, and her biggest problem is, because she's under 59 and a half, we have to find a way to support her from her, our retirement accounts by using a special tax provision. But she made it into her early 50s, and it's not too late. For, anybody can make it. You just need a plan. You can start as young as you want, but... Middle-class folks can become middle-class millionaires.
3: And with a long time to plan for retirement, because let's say you are, as uh, she was, retiring in your early to mid-50s, then the biggest thing you're going to need is portfolio growth, because after you retire, you still have another 30, maybe even possibly 40 years.
1: That's exactly right. People are not aware of how long they may live in retirement.
3: The common approach to retirement is to shift your assets away from equities as you approach retirement.
1: Well, the idea for most people using the traditional view is that most of your money should be in so-called safer assets like bonds, but I'm not sure that I, I agree with that traditional view because while you definitely want to protect your portfolio to some degree after you retire, you don't want to neglect growth. Because, as you said, Deborah, people are living longer and can spend possibly decades in retirement.
3: And if you use a withdrawal rule, usually sometimes talk, people talk about the 4% rule from your portfolio. If the market has a few down years, there's a good chance that that quote-unquote safe asset that is, that is your nest egg won't provide returns that keep pace with inflation.
1: Yeah, this is a very serious thing to realize, why you need portfolio growth after retirement. This means that you might also be seeing real losses as you lose purchasing power to inflation. If you combine this with the fact that it's possible that you could spend 30 or 40 years in retirement, you could easily outlive your money. This is something that people are not very much aware of. And although I agree in principle... Uh, the the view that I'm seeing hit the press more and more from financial planners who are trying to deal with this issue I'm not sure I agree. Now the, the most popular one is the bucket approach and this bucket approach is where you take the portfolio and you divide it into three buckets or three parts. First part, highly liquid, low risk, money that you need to access in the next five years. Second bucket, The part of the portfolio for money that you need in five to ten years. And then lastly, a bucket for growth. I like the principle of preparing for growth. I don't agree with this method of buckets. I think it's far, uh, far wiser to use the approaches that we use in our office, which are total portfolio viewpoints, rather than chopping the portfolio into buckets. But I do agree in principle that... You need to consider growth after retirement.
2: You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Deborah Lewis. Call 919 872 7000
3: to set an appointment with me regarding your financial situation. Call me at 919 872 7000. Doug, what is
2: new in the area of investment planning?
1: Popular as they may be, mutual funds are not really well-known because there's no end to the questions that can be asked about them, but people aren't getting answers.
2: Funds often are bought with the aim of turning over the operation to someone else. And what we usually find is that a person's understanding of mutual funds may be minimal. Right, Doug?
1: That's the big risk, Lynn. So much money is out there at risk. Questions arise, they're discussed, but for the most part, they're left unanswered. Questions like the abilities of those who manage the funds, or the fees that are being charged, or the labeling abuses that go on different types of funds, like conservative funds, which really take heavy risks.
2: Well, Doug, so what's a person supposed to do? What should a person do? Well, really, I think we need to see
1: that an investor should seek professional advice as he goes into the investments of mutual funds, work with a certified financial planner, because if not, you may have a big surprise waiting for you. But also you need to understand that the prospectus is the crucial document. That's the only legal document that you've got that really tells you everything that there is about the fund.
2: Well, you know, there are some folks that I have spoken with that still say they're a little bit confused about what to do when they read one of these things.
1: Actually, I've heard the same thing myself, Linda. You know, uh, it may be that we should go to a mutual fund prospectus and let's just discuss over the air what to look for and what you can jump over, in my opinion, in reading a mutual fund prospectus.
2: Exactly. And they usually have like a table of contents so you can get right to some of the most important parts. But let's let's go over one right now.
1: Well, the first thing you're going to find in most mutual fund prospectuses is is the summary of expense page. Believe it or not, I think you can jump over that one. That one is usually not very helpful. I would go past the summary of expenses. Those are the internal structure of the fund.
2: And um, I guess the, the most important, one of the most important things to look at is the investment objectives and the policies. Right, Doug? Right. Now, that's
1: usually going to be very soon in your prospectus, and it'll be labeled as investment objective and policies, and that is something that I think you should always go to immediately to find out if it's the kind of fund you want. Uh, For example, uh, suppose we were looking at a growth mutual fund, Linda. What might it say there under investment objective and policies? Well,
2: you might find that in your prospectus it says that this particular fund aims to provide you with growth of capital. And the realization of current income will not be a consideration. So the fund seeks to achieve its objective by investing in a diversified portfolio consisting primarily of common stocks.
1: That's a pretty good way that you'd see under the investment objective section in a prospectus of a growth stock fund. Now, let me ask you a question. Suppose you had a client who was looking for high income, like a retiree maybe. Would this be the proper type of fund for them?
2: No, not, not at all.
1: But is it warned right there in the prospectus? Doesn't it say right there?
2: It says current income will not be a consideration. Right.
1: This is th- So that's not the kind of fund that you'd want. Right. And if you saw that in your prospectus, you'd know that's not for you.
3: You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call to make an appointment with Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner of Lewis Financial Management. Call 919-872-7000 or visit our website, dougandlinda.com.
1: Now, another thing that you'll notice in the prospectus that I think you should go to right away is to see a section called Certain Securities and Investment Techniques. I always go to see that one right away to see what special techniques are there in the prospectus.
2: And also, you'd want to look at the years of experience that the portfolio counselor has had within the fund. Right, Doug?
1: Yeah, the the, the mutual fund managers... Are listed by name and by experience. Uh, One warning when you come to this part of your prospectus, if you see that the mutual fund managers have not been managing the fund for very long then that's something that you may want to shy away from because all of the results are not this manager's results. I personally like to see funds who can tell me the manager has been in ma- you know, managing that fund or working with that company for the last 20 years or 15 years or whatever. But I think you should have a minimum of 10 years.
2: Another very important thing to look at, Doug, would be the risks of investing, right?
1: That's right. That's called the risk section. Always go to your risk section and understand as best you can what are the risks in your fund because all funds have risks. And after looking at the risk section, and that probably will take a little help working with a financial planner to understand some of the risk, but to go to the investment results section, there will be a part of your prospectus that says it's the investment results what the fund has averaged. For example, I can think of one that says uh, the fund has averaged a total return of 15.9% a year uh, ever since its inception. But also you want to make sure that if it is a load fund, that those results include the maximum sales charge that was paid.
2: What about d- dividends and distributions? There there were usually is a section where it discusses yes. Whether there will be dividends paid or any distributions I paid. think that's
1: very important because, for example, you may be looking for monthly distributions and you go into a stock fund that doesn't pay but semi-annual or annually. Right. You may be looking for uh, a growth fund, uh, which typically would only pay maybe once a year dividends, and all of a sudden you're getting a monthly uh, distribution. So you want to find out what are the dividend distribution and dates Uh, and they will be in your prospectus. And
2: this particular fund that we're looking at usually pays its dividends in December.
1: That's because it's a stock fund.
2: Right. Sales charges. I think that's important.
1: I don't think it's so important to go to the the summary of expenses at the beginning, but I do think it's important to go to the sales charges. If there are any sales charges, uh, those are called loads, you want to go immediately and find that section so you understand what is the sales charge, and then you will find very often the sales charge will be listed as a percentage of both the net amount invested or the offering price or something called the dealer commission as a percentage of the offering price. That confuses a lot of people, Linda.
3: This is Deborah Lewis of Lewis Financial Management. Call us at 919-872-7000 to speak about your situation and to set up an appointment. 919-872-7000.
1: The important thing, I think, is look at the sales percentage as a percentage of the offering price. That column there is the one that I always go to. And then if you want to find out how much your broker or planner is receiving, then you go to the one over that. Now, that's not a double commission. For example, if it said 5.75% and then it said dealer commission 5%, what that means is 5%. 0.75% of the investment is taken away from the investment as a sales charge, and 5% of that goes to the broker for his advice in helping you select the fund. Another thing to look at is what's called breakpoints. You'll find those also listed as a table usually in the prospectus. It will go ahead and list the ways you can reduce your sales charge. Uh, some funds will let you, if you want to put in, let's say you've got $100,000 to invest, but your financial planner has felt that the most you should put is $25,000 in a particular fund, then some funds will let you put twenty-five dollars in one fund, twenty-five dollars in another fund, twenty-five dollars in another fund, twenty-five dollars in another fund, and you can actually do those as a concurrent purchase. And if you do that way with concurrent purchases, each one of them would be at a lower break point or lower sales charge as if you'd put $100,000 in each of them. So, for example, it might have started at five and three quarters percent, and you might have found all of a sudden you dropped yourself down to four and a half percent. You saved yourself maybe a thousand dollars by just buying concurrently.
2: Right. And so, if you happen to uh, want to invest that certain amount, you're able to invest that in different periods of time, right? Like, if you had a statement of intention that you would be investing, uh, say, two hundred thousand. And over the next six months, you're going to be investing that amount. So it would be included.
1: Well, that's another way. That's not actually called concurrent purchases. What that is, is you know that you've got money coming over a six month or a year's period. Do you have the right to ask for the reduced sales charge from day one, dollar one, knowing that you're going to be investing over a period of time? Instead of having the lump today, yes, you do in some cases. That is called the statement of intention, and most funds will let you go 13 months. So let's say that you know over 13 months, you're going to have $100,000 to invest, but today you've only got $10,000, and $10,000 would have a five and three quarters percent sales charge, but at $100,000, it would be maybe a four and a half percent sales charge. Well, if you start today with a statement of intention, you can get that reduced sales charge. On every dollar you invest over the next 13 months. Look for that as one of the ways to reduce your sales charges.
2: And also remember that uh, they usually have a section about shareholder services, right Doug?
1: That's very important. A lot of funds uh, have very limited shareholder services and many of them have exceptional shareholder services. One thing I think that's important is to see about the automatic investment plan as a shareholder service. How easy is it for you to set up an automatic investment plan?
2: And along with that would come telephone redemption and exchange privileges. Right, Doug?
1: Now, this is a tricky one, Lynn. Uh, Some funds are very easy to give telephone privileges, and others are not. And that's very important because, you know, let's say that uh, you find you're going to need to get some money out of your fund. Do you want to be able to pick up the phone and call your fund and say, send me $10,000, please? Or do you want to be told, well, I'm sorry, we need to have that in writing and we also need to have that guaranteed. And you say, is that a notary? And they say, no, you'll have to go to a bank and have what's called a signature guarantee. And you say, well, I need my money right away. Can I get my money, please? And they say, I'm sorry, uh, this particular fund doesn't offer telephone redemption. And you say, well, golly, I thought I saw it in the prospectus. And they say, well, it really didn't say telephone redemption. It said telephone exchanges. So there are features called telephone exchanges where you can move your money just by picking up a phone and say, switch it from fund A to fund B, please, if you've been given that privilege. And there are services that say, I want you to send me back X number of dollars, please, and do that all by telephone. All those are things that you want to know are available to you, and they will be in your prospectus.
3: This is Deborah Lewis of Lewis Financial Management. Call us at 919-872-7000 to speak about your situation and to set up an appointment. 919-872-7000.
1: Chip, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you?
5: Yeah, um, my question is, um, I'm a young person. I just graduated from college.
1: Congratulations.
5: (laughs) Thank you. been out for about 6 months now and I've got a steady job. Good. I don't make a lot of money, but I do want to start saving some money and uh someone had suggested mutual funds. Absolutely. Um my question is how much is enough to put into a mutual fund? Uh, well, I don't have a lot of money to invest in it, but um is a small amount is it
1: well, many funds will take as little as $50 at a shot. Right. So, no, you don't need a lot of money to go into mutual fund investing. The importance is regularity. The amazing thing is, because you're only 24 years old, Chip, I could show you, if you do you think you could put aside $100 a month? Um,
5: I was thinking somewhere around $75 a month.
1: Well, I would show you, if you could put $75 a month between now and the time you're my, you're my age, I'll bet you I could show you how you could accumulate close to a million dollars. Okay, that sounds the, You see, because the big thing you have in your favor is you have years, right? 24 years old. Uh, you've got a potential 60 years of compounding. And, I, and Einstein said that the the laws of compound interest are the eighth natural wonder of the world. They're absolutely amazing. So I'm all in favor of what you're doing. And I think I would also look at an aggressive fund for yourself. I'd go into an international fund. I think you'd have a lot of fun going into a mutual fund. Uh, that has a little more volatility because of your age, you don't have to be afraid of the risk.
5: That was my other question is uh, investing a small amount at a time like this, is it better to be conservative with it or be a little more aggressive with it?
1: You want to be aggressive because of a principle called dollar cost averaging, which basically says that if you're fortunate and the stock market drops drastically and you're sending in a fixed amount, you end up making more money. Strange as it may seem. Because the larger amount that you've got going in on a regular basis, when the market drops, then that same amount buys that many more shares than it did the previous month. And when the market turns around, the value of those shares that you now have more shares of than you would have had elsewise is now even worth more than you did. And over the period of time, you will find that you are making money much faster than you thought you were.
5: Okay. All right. Well, then that answers my question. I guess I will go ahead with my, my plans to do that. Then. Yeah,
1: you want to find a little bit of help in selecting your mutual fund. You don't want to try and do it on your own, at least without checking with some financial planner or financial advisor first. I and- would recommend maybe look at an international fund, possibly one in the telecommunications area or in the service sector for yourself.
2: Okay, well. And Chip, if, you, if you'd like some information, we have a whole library of different mutual funds as well as Morning Star reports that we'd be happy to provide you with. Okay. Okay? And that number to call in Raleigh is eight seven two seven thousand.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Chip. Well, then what's new in the area of estate planning?
2: Well, you know, Doug, there's, there's definitely some vital information. If your parents haven't saved enough or planned for the possibility of spending time in a nursing home, the cost of that and other expenses could fall to you, the children.
1: Unfortunately, many are ill-prepared to take care of their parents, Lynn, when the parents can no longer handle their own affairs. They're struggling to save enough for their own retirement and for their children's college education, and looking at how to deal with their parents is, uh, is, is quite frightening.
2: Yes, it certainly is. We're going to go over a, a little checklist that will help you organize your financial records, and the information that you'll need if the time comes when your parents can no longer make decisions for themselves.
1: The real thing are the essential documents, Lynn. We should have, for our parents, we should have certain documents and make sure we don't wait. Number one, there's got to be a will. A will that names a trustee or an executor uh, how the estate's supposed to be distributed. A trustee who's going to manage the assets, the executor who's going to make sure all provisions of the will are followed and pay the estate taxes and the expenses. And in many cases, this trustee and the executor can be the same person, have to have a will.
2: Secondly, have a durable power of attorney. This document gives one person the power to legally conduct the affairs of another. And if one or both of your parents are incapacitated, this gives the designated person access to their assets so that the bills can be paid and You know, all of their other affairs can be taken care of. So make Uh, sure you have a durable power of attorney.
1: Right, Lynn. Third one is the durable power of attorney for health care. This is very crucial. It gives a designated person the authority to make medical decisions in the event that the patient is incapacitated. Now, this is not a living will, right?
2: Right, because number four is a living will. or This is also called a directive to the physicians. This states that medical situations in which a patient would not want to be kept alive Uh, that their desire could be uh, implemented. And it isn't legally binding, but it can relieve a family of the emotional burden of making this decision. And if you need a form, they're usually available at your doctor's office or at a retirement or nursing home, and that is the living will.
1: Right. A lot of people confuse the living will, which is basically the desire to die a natural death, with the health care power of attorney, which is very different, and you should have both. Then there should be a letter of instruction, This is a letter for the beneficiaries of the will and the trust, and it's designed to make it easier for the family to close out the affairs. You know, it should include the names of those to notify upon death, funeral arrangements, last wishes, and the disposal of assets. And although it's not a legal document, it should be in agreement with the will and kept with the rest of the documents or with the estate plan.
2: And the last is your inventory of finances. This would be a list of all your financial and legal documents, where they can be found. And what you should do is keep one copy in a safe deposit box or maybe another copy with your financial advisor, your executor, your heir, or your spouse. And as far as that checklist on the inventory of finances, you know, make sure you've got, you know, the pers- your, your parents' name, their Social Security number, who... Um, you know, some important names and phone numbers should, that should be kept handy might be a clergyman, uh, the attorney that they're using, who their CPA or their accountant might be, who uh, works with their investments, their financial planner, their insurance agent, and who are the relatives and close friends that, they, that would need to be contacted.
1: Now, Lynn, I guess lastly, there are other money considerations in estate planning for parents. You should scrutinize the insurance policies for over or under coverage, check auto, life disability, and so on. You want to pay particular attention to health insurance. And I guess lastly, consult an estate expert, a certified financial planner who works in the area of estate planning and make sure it's done right. The comfort that the family is taking care of everything ahead of time is such a comfort. Then you can go ahead and enjoy the rest of your parents' lives knowing that it's all been done properly. Parents appreciate it and the families appreciate
2: it. It's definitely important for people who do have parents that maybe have sizable assets or assets in general uh, that they assist them with their financial planning right. in working with an advisor.
1: That's right. Seek competent financial advice and if you have any financial questions, call me at 8727000. That's 8727000.
2: You know, when when folks are younger, they're more concerned about saving, saving for college funding, saving for that first new house. And accumulating and working on their career, right? So they can uh, increase their income. And then as they get older, then questions like, how much mortgage can I afford? And what about my retirement plan? Or I'm getting a promotion. I'm moving to a new company. I'm getting, you know, the company's downsizing. I'm losing my job. What do I do with my 401k, And what's an IRA? And how do I roll it over? And I just inherited some money. Well, how do I invest it? Those kinds of questions. But, and then of course, when you start having kids, then you get more concerned about, well, should I do estate planning? Do I have a will? But aren't there some uh, questions that need to be addressed with end of life planning mistakes? Did you see that article? in uh, financial planning regarding end-of-life planning mistakes that need to be avoided.
1: Yeah, the the end-of-life planning is one that is usually uh, not touched on for a number of reasons, a number of reasons. Uh, As folks get older and older, again, as you said, Linda, they've moved through the stages but the question of what about end-of-life planning, and, of course, when you've been planning as long as we have for clients, we do see these issues coming up. Now, take, take the case, for example, of an 80-year-old man, I'm sorry, let's make it an 80-year-old uh, woman, who did not communicate how she wanted her retirement accounts and her other assets to be distributed among her four children, okay? Okay. And let's say she had $500,000 in bank accounts and a million dollars in IRAs. Now, suddenly, the only daughter, there are four of them, three boys and a girl, the only daughter who's been divorced twice moves in with her mother. She says she needs access to pay her bills. The daughter uh, persuades her mother to add her name to the mother's bank account and to make the daughter the beneficiary of the retirement accounts. Sounds like trouble already. It is trouble because when the mother dies, 100% of her assets go to the scheming daughter. Nothing goes to her three sons, even though her will may have said divide her estate equally. And although this is a hypothetical case, it's not too far off from several of our clients who have gone through situations like this. So for clients whose parents are still alive, we encourage them to hold meetings with their parents as well as with the children.
3: To find out what people want. Each generation wants to uh, provide and communicate to the next generation.
1: Yeah, the conversation needs to be had. And of course, if they have us as a financial planning firm, we make sure that conversation is had. And while planners can't mandate and order their clients to have such conversations, We feel it's the fiduciary duty of the planner to strongly encourage the clients to express their wishes. Because by not doing so, they can be creating endless fights that can tear families apart.
3: This is Deborah Lewis. Our number at the office is 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000.
2: And it leaves a big mess.
1: No, we have a family. yeah we have clients right now at least one i can think of right. where there's a lawsuit between uh siblings yeah it right. it can be a real mess
3: and it's like it's like you tend to say that you know the silent generation is sometimes that group who um Maybe was never encouraged, or they never wanted to talk about financial planning with other family members. But it's that silent generation that may need the most encouragement to start talking to their own children. Or if your parents are in that silent generation, they're just not comfortable talking about financial planning. That you have to, you know, start that conversation.
1: That's right, Deborah. That really is. No matter what, you got to create some some method. Of having the conversation. Now what I like is a personal memorandum that states who gets the dishes, who gets the grandfather's clock, who gets the rocking chair. Some family members feel, you know, may feel more emotionally attached to some of these items than others. And so the memorandum works very nicely.
2: Yes, and I, I remember even your mom used to... <laughs> Write little notes and put them under different pieces that right. she wanted to give. At different to, stages, her, her own life. Well, right. well,
1: you remember when I had the discussion with her, Mom, right. you need to go ahead and let your wishes be made known. Yeah, no, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah,
2: that's right. And it is it is important uh, to do pre-mortem tax planning um, as well, isn't it, Doug?
1: This is a touchy subject, Linda, because if one is diagnosed with a terminal illness. Okay. If one really is, and it's not a sudden death, then we can, as you say, Linda, do pre-mortem planning for tax purposes. And in that case, we don't want to miss any step-up-in-basis provisions because of jointly held assets. Many assets are jointly held, but if we have enough time while a person is terminally ill we want to then make sure that we move all of the jointly held assets over to the terminally ill spouse so that the surviving spouse gets the step up and can sell those assets if she chooses or if he chooses tax free
3: that seems very effective i mean if you have enough
2: time that's that's estate planning probably at its best and you know just because we've dealt with you know widows and widowers I know it's it's a it's a comforting feeling to the surviving spouse that you've taken the time to kind of handhold through this process because it's never easy when you're losing a loved one. It's always difficult and it's difficult for the uh, the caregiving spouse to 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 make sure that issues and and matters are are dealt with in a proper way because um, you know, people spend their lifetime accumulating these assets. And for the surviving spouse, it's always better to have that, that advice.
3: Absolutely. So in addition of leaving instructions through the will, then also having a conversation uh, within the realm of a financial planning environment, now that you, you can feel fairly certain that, like our earlier example, that's not going to tear your kids apart. Exactly.
1: You know, it's so sad when clients come to us and they tell us, well, they've had a financial planner for years and we ask them, well, what's been done in these other areas? And basically nothing has been done because they thought they were getting financial planning. They were getting money management. Mm-hmm. But true financial planning has to include all asset, all aspects of the estate side as well as the investment side as well as the tax planning side. Mm-hmm. So these subject matters need to be not only touched on, they need to be addressed thoroughly as part of the client-planner relationship.
2: The living estate and the death estate.
1: The living estate and the death estate, Deborah.
3: If you hear something tonight that sounds like your situation, call us. Set up an appointment. We can help you. 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000.
1: Well, then let's take Dave's call. Dave, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you?
6: Yeah, so I had a question about inheritance. All right. If I'm receiving an inheritance uh, enough to pay off a mortgage, uh, and that's the only debt I have left, would it be wise to use that inheritance to pay off the mortgage and then use the mortgage payments I was uh, plan on paying for use those for uh, children's education, or is it better to continue to keep the mortgage and use the inheritance?
1: All right. Let's find out some facts. How old are you, Dave?
6: Thirty-five.
1: Thirty five married or single. Married. Married. And are you employed right now? Yes, I am. Alright, what's your what's your income? My
6: income's about eighty thousand.
1: Eighty thousand. And your wife, is she employed? No, she's not. All right, so family income is it eighty. Now, living expenses right now, including the mortgage, how much are your living expenses run, let's say, on a yearly basis? Including um, and include everything you think of, you know, like your travel, your gifts, your lifestyle for the year.
6: Right, I would say Probably have maybe $40,000 know, a year in expenses, including the mortgage.
1: Now let's go to your assets before the inheritance. What do, you, what do your investments look like?
6: Probably maybe $10,000 total in mutual funds.
1: All right. So you've, so you've accumulated $10,000. That's your total investment portfolio. Correct, at this time. All right. Well, yeah. Your expenses must be much, much higher than you think they are because we've we're we're missing twenty five thousand a year or thirty five thousand a year. That's that's going somewhere. You see what I'm saying? Right. And I think that's important. Answering his question about the retire about the okay. the mortgage. Now, right. all right. Now you received an inheritance. How much is your inheritance? Probably around
6: one hundred and thirty.
1: All right. So you received one hundred and thirty thousand dollars. Right. And how much is the value of your home?
6: The value of the home is about two hundred.
1: The value of the home is 200 and the mortgage, the outstanding? Uh,
6: it's about
1: 110 110 And you want to notice it makes sense to go ahead and
6: pay off the mortgage. Pay off the mortgage. I have 20000 left and use that and put in some mutual funds and then the $1,000 a month I'm paying for house payment, put some type of investment plan yeah. together. Yeah. Well,
1: I think really if you think about it, you've already answered your own question, Dave. You have shown a very poor history of investing when you've had cash on a regular basis. Cause you've just told me that your excess is 35,000 a year. You should be able right now under the information you just gave me real quick to be investing about 3000 a month. And if it hasn't been happening, I don't have a lot of comfort that it will be happening. If you, if you end up with an extra thousand a month, which should be 4,000, my advice to you would be to capture the 130,000 get that invested Okay. That 130000 even under, uh, you know, a normal or even maybe a worst case scenario, should be able to produce for you about 9100 a year, about $750 a month income, which you don't need to pay the mortgage. Right. The other thing is by paying off the mortgage, your taxes are going to go up. Correct. Right. So then you, you'd be in a worse condition. I think what you need to do is step number one, see a certified financial planner. Okay. Step number two: design an asset allocation with the pl- financial planner for a, an investment portfolio that invests the hundred and thirty thousand into unit sizes that uh, I would say maybe oh fifteen thousand dollar unit size to get about eight investments there. Okay. Work with a living expense sheet with your planner that will go ahead and go over the expenses and get your lifestyle on paper the way you and your wife are comfortable. And then whatever that excess is, if it turns out to be not 3000 a month, let's say it turns out to be 2000 a month, right. we need to get that money invested at the beginning of every month in what we call a pay yourself first plan okay. and then be living on the excess and build into the arrangement. What I do in my practice, when I have clients like that, that have commissions, we build into the timing for the lumps that are expected to be coming versus the bear base salary that's coming through the year. Correct. And I think that we needs to be done, but by waiting to try and accumulate, I think that's a mistake. Okay. And I don't think you'd do it the other way that way, at least looking from your history. I'd capture the lump and get it working.
2: Okay, great. Yeah, and write down your questions, and as Doug said, you know, work with a financial planner. If you'd like any information that we can provide for you, you can call me at the office. I appreciate it. Um, and that number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. Right, And thank you for calling, Dave. Thank you. Bye-bye. And good luck.
1: ETFs, of course, are a type of way to be in mutual funds where you don't have to have any active management.
3: Definitely a passive investment.
1: It's a passive investment. And before ETFs were so pos- so popular, we had the index funds, which are still extremely popular. As a matter of fact, I think I read last week that more money moved into index funds over the past year than in any year in the past. Wow. But in any case, there is another side of the story that's not being told.
2: And what's that side, Doug?
1: That is the world of active management. And what about actively managed funds? Now, I am a believer in actively managed funds because I don't want just to be trusting the market, riding with the market, that's what an index fund does. That's what the ETFs generally do. So the case for actively managed funds, I think, needs to be told a lot more. You know, the current stock market environment favors so-called actively managed funds or active managers who are picking individual stocks trying to beat the indexes. In other words, now we're, we're looking for a manager, We want to know who is handling the stocks and bonds in my fund rather than I'll just ride the market. And that type of uh, approach, I think we're going to hear a lot more in the press. It hasn't been promoted very much. I think the ETFs and the index funds got all the press in the past year. My guess is this coming year, we're going to hear a lot more about active management. And I believe that an investor should be pursuing actively manage funds, before you give $50,000 to a thing. <laughs> you to should buy something. <clears throat> that's right. You want to know who is handling your money. Mm-hmm. What's the track record of this man or this woman who is, ha- who is making these moves with your money? Mm-hmm. And I think the story hasn't been told well enough. My guess is it's going to be told. If by nobody else, it's going to be told by me because any clients <laughs> that come into our office and, Deborah, you're going to be telling the that's same right. story.
3: That's right. That's right. And 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 it is very I think um good for everyone to know that there is a big difference between mimicking a more, uh, a portfolio or ha- being in an index fund that just mimics an index or choosing a manager, finding a manager that is going to do more than just buy and sell and mimic an index.
1: I like the way you said that, Deborah, because many people think an index fund is a managed fund and really, you're just trusting the index.
2: And I, most, most people would want to have someone who's minding the store or minding your funds. So what is your track record for the last 10 years? Morningstar even um, backs that up. A, yeah, Morningstar
1: is a good way to go ahead and analysts. look for mm-hmm. that track record. That's exactly right. You don't have to be blindly trusting the market or otherwise known as the index. You don't have to. You can go ahead and look for, there are some people that know very well how to make their moves and they have done exceptionally well. Those are the ones that we want to give our money to.
2: Well, everyone have a wonderful week and thanks for joining us on Money Matter.